This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com and type Mr. Creeps in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package today. You'll get eight of their new Bigger Omaha Steaks burgers absolutely free. And because it's Omaha Steaks, everything's backed by their 100% money back guarantee. Hello everyone, I hope you've all been doing well. Summer is truly starting to heat up and with it, we still have a collection of amazing stories for you to listen to. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I discovered reports of an expedition to the South Pole. It was Project Ultrafauna, written by Red Hot Owl. The following account was recovered by Japanese explorers back in 2019 during an expedition to the South Pole. Due to a concerted effort by the U.S. government to censor the information disclosed here, I will not be revealing my sources nor the names of the explorers who originally found it. Feel free to listen on and draw your own conclusions. American writer of horror fiction, best known for his creation of the Cthulhu mythos, H.P. Lovecraft, once said, The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. An iconic quote, to be certain, yet I must respectfully disagree with Mr. Lovecraft. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind isn't fear of the unknown. It is our obsession with understanding it. Fear is but a stepping stone to be conquered. Curiosity, on the other hand, is relentless, uncompromising. It is our curiosity that defines us as a species, and it is said curiosity that will eventually be our downfall. My name is Monica Scholes, and I'm originally from Germany, but I was scouted fairly early in my fledgling career. I'm a marine biologist of sorts. I work for a subdivision of the U.S. government that specializes in the discovery and the study of anomalous aquatic life. My occupation might seem oddly specific at first, but you can rest assured that we exist for a reason. Keep listening and you'll soon find out why. You have probably heard of the infamous bloop at some point in your life, and the unlikely event that you haven't. The bloop was a powerful, ultra-low-frequency underwater sound of uncertain origin detected by the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration in 1997. It was a reoccurring topic of discussion by both scientists and the media alike for over a decade. Until in 2012, the NOAA went on to disprove some of the bolder theories, stating that the sound appears to be consistent with noises generated via arctic glacial movements or at least that's the explanation they came up with after we pressured them into covering it up and the reason we did that is because earlier that same year the sound was detected once again however this time we had the modern equipment necessary to pinpoint the general location of its source an expedition was promptly organized when the first sets of data and images came back None of us knew how to react. I can only imagine how the first scientists must have felt once they realized the sheer scale of what resided directly below them. 
Now, I've made my fair share of unconventional discoveries over the years. Ancient sunken cities, deep-sea creatures that border on the mythical, entire ecosystems comprised of bizarre, downright alien flora and fauna. And yet nothing could have prepared me for what we ended up finding down there, dwelling in the cold depths of the southern ocean, beneath its expansive sheets of ice. I could hardly tell what I was looking at initially, but it was clearly massive in scale since, even from a distance, the probe could fit only a fraction of its mass in a single frame. It resembled an enormous glob of blubbery pinkish flesh, suspended less than a mile from the bottom of the ocean. With the aid of different echo-sounding measurement techniques, on-site personnel were able to determine that the globular structure appeared to be occupying a space of about one kilometer. You don't have to be an expert to know that an organism of such a ridiculous size shouldn't exist. In spite of that, further research proved that it was indeed organic in nature, single-handedly demolishing a lot of our preconceived notions about the reality of life on Earth. And thus began Project Ultrafauna. Our purpose was to study and understand this impossible organism, which we later dubbed Sirius, after one of the titans in Greek mythology. Back at the start of 2013, I was deployed to our newly established base in Antarctica. I wasn't the sole researcher there, but I was the most experienced, especially in my particular field. The privilege of studying such a phenomenon up close and personal more than made up for the unpleasant work conditions. In a way, I saw this opportunity as the culmination of my entire career. The first order of business was to install a 24-7 underwater camera around the subject. This proved to be a challenge given its colossal size and the depth at which it resided. But thankfully, its movement seemed extremely restricted, limited to the clusters of thin tendrils and appendage-like growths scattered across its otherwise dormant mass each possessed in a maximum reach of about 200 meters. Initial observations determined their function to be primarily defensive. One of our drones was immediately ensnared, crushed and torn apart upon attempting to collect a sample. Sirius reacted in much the same way when approached by other sea life as well, though it didn't utilize any of the material left behind. There were literal whale carcasses left to just float there, decomposing at the bottom of the abyss. This posed the question as to how something so absurdly giant could even sustain itself to begin with. Apart from its pseudo-tentacles, the surface of Sirius was an expanse of smooth, pulsating flesh. No orifices to be seen. One of my colleagues proposed an interesting theory Perhaps its outermost layer acted as a filter, and its source of food was the microorganisms and bacteria it deliberately cultivated by leaving behind dead tissue. Of course, we couldn't confirm any of that without a sample, and the idea that an entity of such immense scale survived solely on a diet of microorganisms was far-fetched, to say the least. It didn't seem to produce any ways that we could analyze either. We attempted sending multiple drones out at once, each approaching from a different angle, but the result was the same every time. 
They were destroyed as soon as they got within 200 meters of Syria's. Government funding or not, we couldn't just keep throwing expensive tech at it and hope for the best. Around that time was when the first incident happened. His name was Gregory and one of our lead engineers. I'd always known him to be a reserved and stoic man, an old-fashioned professional. So imagine my surprise when he kicked open the door to the monitoring station and threatened all of us at gunpoint. He looked completely out of his mind, slapping the side of his head with one hand while holding the gun in the other, spewing nonsense that we couldn't decipher. There were already traces of blood spattered across his face and overalls, which we later found out were from the guard that he had ambushed with the pipe wrench before stealing his sidearm. Upon noticing the large screen that displayed a grid of all the video feeds that we had of Sirius, he let out the most pitiful wail that I had ever heard a man produce, and he opened fire on the equipment. We took fire as sparks and bullets began to fly. I winced every time something flew over my head, half expecting it to graze my skull. Whatever his true motives were, he did manage to destroy a significant chunk of our hardware before shoving the barrel into his own mouth and ending himself. He didn't get the quick and painless death that he was likely hoping for either. His aim was a bit too far off center and he ended up taking out half his jaw instead. Of course, the poor guy was already presumed dead by the time security finally showed up, slumped against a wall, sitting in a pool of his own liquid. Our research was temporarily put on hold while we waited for the replacement equipment to arrive. That, and naturally, we needed some time to recover from the ordeal. Like I mentioned before, Gregory was always known as the reliable veteran, the grumpy old-timer who had seen it all. I couldn't even begin to speculate as to what could have driven him to such a state. The next similar incident was with our lead physician, Dr. Lee, who had apparently locked herself in the sick bay and refused to come out. After she had altogether stopped responding, on-site security were called to manually disable the lock, only to find her limp body sprawled across the exam table, half-clutching a syringe. Her colleagues were immediately able to conclude that she had taken her own life via the syringe. Prior to doing so, she had also seized what medical supplies she could and tried to dispose of them by stuffing them down a toilet. And then there was my assistant, Bryce. From what I was told, he was caught trying to overload the central heating system and not wanting to be captured and interrogated, used a piece of glass on his own throat. In addition to the alarming frequency at which they were occurring, each of these attempts seemed to double as deliberate attempts to sabotage our efforts. All of the victims had close to nothing in common. Trying to establish some sort of connection between them quickly proved to be a hopeless endeavor. When time was becoming as precious a resource as any, the bigwigs back home were starting to get impatient. Admitted that we hadn't made much progress and it was difficult to focus on the job when you didn't know if the person next to you was teetering on the verge of a manic episode. We started hearing rumors that the military were itching to get involved, as they viewed the existence of Krios as a matter of national and global security. Don't ask me how they came to such a conclusion, 
our reports certainly didn't reflect their concerns. Regardless, we were given an ultimatum. We had exactly two months to figure out what Krios was and how it worked. Otherwise, we'd be taken off the project and well, likely terminated in order to prevent a leak. The pressure was on. My only slept for about three hours every other day. To say that most of us were running on fumes would have been an understatement. We were like walking automatons, going through the motions that we were programmed to do, and wasting little energy on anything else. Adding to the oppressive atmosphere was the arrival of the winter season, which here means weeks of near-perpetual darkness. It almost came as no surprise when another death was confirmed. The victim was a fellow researcher who was found dead in his cabin, lying naked in the middle with a large, horizontal slice across his stomach and covered in multiple punctures. A quick toxicology report coupled with the empty pill bottles found littering his bed and nightstand suggested that the initial cause of death was likely voluntary. Of course, that also meant that all the injuries were done by somebody post-mortem. They were far too surgical and severe to be self-inflicted. The cut in the man's abdomen in particular seemed to have been forcefully stretched open. Somebody had been picking through his guts and then using the residue to finger paint on the claustrophobic cabin's singular window. Though I wasn't present, nor was I allowed anywhere near the victim's quarters, since it technically wasn't my job to look into such matters. I did see a recreation of the grisly drawing, if you can even call it that. I'm not sure how to exactly describe it. It resembled a simple stick figure with extra arms and legs and enclosed in a larger circle. The whole thing was oddly ritualistic, quite unlike the previous cases that seemed more focused on inciting panic and discord among the crew. But as unnerving as it all was, I couldn't afford to dwell on it for too long. We were getting closer to our first breakthrough since I got here. One of our hydrophone arrays managed to isolate a low, almost radio-like frequency emanating from somewhere within Creus's core. Though I wouldn't call it electronic in nature, it also wasn't consistent with anything a purely biological organism should have been capable of producing. Honestly, it was downright alien. No wonder we hadn't noticed it previously. It was a bold assumption, but could this constant, near-undetectable sound be the reason why people were doing these things to themselves? The prospect of certain sound patterns affecting one's mental state isn't exactly a foreign concept, especially if you happen to work for the US government. Like the tendrils, perhaps this was just another defensive mechanism, albeit a more subtle one. In the wake of this new revelation, an idea had emerged. What if we were to try and replicate the signal? The goal was to elicit some sort of reaction or possibly even acknowledgement from the immense creature. It was a stretch, but then again, we were already grasping at straws. Even if my assumption about the frequency's purpose was correct, it wasn't like they were going to prematurely end the project because of it. The mission was much too important. Fortunately, a couple of the staff had backgrounds in audio engineering, making the process a whole lot easier than it would have been otherwise. 
Not so fortunate was the fact that our work kept getting disrupted by the escalating number of incidents. By day 20 of our two-month deadline, nearly one-third of my research team were gone. People that looked completely stable one day were dead the next. Some of the bodies were discovered in various stages of dissection. Their blood used to decorate the walls with that same symbol. While the deaths themselves were impossible to predict, I couldn't help but wonder how our unnamed desecrator kept getting away with it. There were cameras virtually everywhere. Surely somebody would have identified them. It was almost as if our overseers were allowing this madness to continue. I'll never forget standing outside of my room, coffee in hand, and looking down at the severed human finger lying at my doorstep. There was a crimson trail leading away from it and towards the shared bathroom. I knew that I was being baited, but I didn't care. My morbid curiosity outweighed my need for self-preservation. Whoever was doing this was clearly trying to show me something, and frankly, I was fed up with having more questions than answers. And so, like a good little lab rat, I followed the proverbial cheese trail to its source. As soon as I saw that the door to one of the stalls was hanging open, inviting me to peek inside, I already knew what I was going to find there. Sure enough, there it was, the body of the young man to whom the finger belonged to, stripped and propped against the toilet. His intestines spilled over his lap and onto the floor, forming a pile. His head hung at an angle, green eyes clouded and vacant. His face didn't seem too familiar, maybe one of the maintenance boys. There was a scalpel left embedded in him, likely the primary cause of death before the body was further dissected. Painted onto the ivory tiles behind him was that, by that point, all too familiar calling card. A multi-limbed stick figure with a circle drawn around it, as though trapped within the boundaries of the shape. That's when the realization finally struck me. It was so obvious, how did I not think of it sooner? I practically sprinted out of the bathroom and down the dimly lit hallway. My heart was racing. Beads of anxious sweat trickled down my brow. I must have seemed deranged as I emerged into the mess hall, where most of my crew were having breakfast. Before anybody could accuse me of having lost my mind, I snatched a hard-boiled egg from my colleague's tray and held it up to the fluorescent light. It's an egg, I laughed. It's a freaking egg. I mean, it made so much sense. Creus wasn't just a vaguely spherical mass of writhing meat, but rather the organic vessel of the true titan waiting to be born. Its sole purpose was to sustain and protect whatever was developing inside of it, explaining the apparent lack of basic biological need. I was immediately challenged on my rash deduction, but I was confident in its validity. I knew that I was right and no one could convince me otherwise, and besides, I didn't need them to believe me so long as everyone did their job. As we approached the dreaded deadline, our research center started looking more like a slaughterhouse. It became commonplace to spot the dismembered remains of some poor fool decorating the corridor. The last time, I saw a guard was them hanging from the ceiling via the cord wrapped around their neck. The comparatively saner among us had to take matters into our own hands when it came to safeguarding our progress. 
Finally, on May 26, 2013, we deployed the transmitter. We wanted to sink it as close to the subject as possible before turning it on. The tension in the control room was palpable. What little remained of the original crew were gathered around the central monitor. This was it. We had neither the time, resources, nor staff to afford, having to go back to the drawing board. The fate of our entire operation hinged on this one final experiment. If it failed, everything that we endured thus far would have been for naught. I glanced at the dial in front of me inside. Turning up the amplifier, I announced to a completely silent audience. Obviously, we couldn't hear it, but we could see that the oversized speaker was beginning to vibrate. When viewed from above, it looked like an insignificant speck against the dark expanse of living tissue, the scale of which was still hard to believe. Come on. Somebody muttered behind me, anxiously gnawing away at his knuckles. We waited and waited, but nothing happened. There were no spikes in the measurements, no visual signs of stirring. The subject was as passive as ever. It was a far-fetched idea from the start, yet we had convinced ourselves that it just had to work. It was the only thing keeping us going. All of these sacrifices, all of the casualties... There had to be some purpose to it all. After everything I've done, everything I've seen and been through, I wasn't going to let it end like this. I clenched my teeth and shoved past my distraught colleagues. None of them even acknowledged me until I picked up the radio. There were several military vessels patrolling the ocean around the frozen continent. Their purpose was to dissuade foreign powers from seizing a foothold but I had other plans for them. This is Professor Scholes from Research Station B-55. If anybody hears me, please respond. It's an emergency. It took some convincing acting, but I was finally able to get in contact with the captain of one of the ships, to whom I proceeded to breathlessly explain that they had to launch an attack on Krios. My justification was that the giant creature turned hostile, and was in the process of releasing some sort of toxin into the water, which in addition to the untold ecological consequences, threatened to reveal the entire operation to the rest of the world. I stressed that time was of the essence and that they needed to act now before it was too late. A few of my subordinates tried to stop me, but the rest that understood what must be done piled onto them and held them down. Several missiles were launched, the impact was something to behold. As I predicted, the torpedoes were immediately intercepted by the grasping appendages, but the resulting explosion was enough to send ripples across the whole organic structure. After all, my goal wasn't to destroy it. It was to provoke it. We received word from the people stationed on the shore that they could feel the ice beneath them begin to rumble. The buzzing in the air became so loud that... We could hear it without the aid of our audio equipment. This tinnitus like ringing that just kept amplifying until I could no longer hear myself think. All of a sudden it ceased entirely, granting us a rare moment of unimpeded clarity, during which I was able to reflect on what I had just done. It would appear that the signal had been affecting all of us from the start, just in different ways. 
The men and women we lost understood its message for what it was. A warning to cease tampering was something we could never hope to understand. Followed by the realization that death is the only true escape from, the inherent defect that is human curiosity. For others of a similar mindset to my own, it had the exact opposite and likely inadvertent effect of stimulating our zealous obsession with knowing the unknowable and pursuing said knowledge at the expense of all else, like moss to a flame. I heard a familiar wail coming from the storage room adjacent to where we were gathered. While the others remained glued to the screen, I stepped away from the console and went over to investigate. Hunched on, the other side of that door was none other than Gregory, the one that had decided to spark our descent into madness. He appeared to have somehow survived, albeit with one half of his face stitched in stable shot. Whoever had treated him hadn't done all that good of a job. The wounds looked infected to the point where they were leaking pus and his right eye was red and swollen, clearly impairing his vision. He was kneeling beside yet another recently disemboweled person and looking down at his hands in horror. It would appear that I had found our elusive artist. With the signal temporarily gone and its influence over my mind subsiding, the unfortunate wretch was confronted with the reality of his actions. He turned his hideous expression towards me in an almost pleading manner, as though expecting me to assure him that none of this was his fault. That he too was the instrument of some higher power that transcends our limited comprehension. And then it happened. The bloob. Just as I had heard it countless times in recordings, only much, much louder. I left Gregory to his lamenting and raced back to the control room. Barring a few of its destroyed limbs that were already starting to regrow, the surface of Krius appeared overall intact. We hadn't even made a dent. All readings showed that it also wasn't what was producing the high amplitude sound. It was coming from somewhere else entirely. The radio crackled to life. Come in, B-55. We're detecting a large shape moving straight for us. It's the target. That's the last we heard of them. I tried to reestablish contact with the rest of the patrol fleet, but nobody responded. The crew operating from the coastline described the sea as being deathly quiet. It was probably time to just call HQ, confess to what had happened, and request an extraction. Just as I was about to take a moment to regain my faculties and think of what to do next, we received yet another transmission from the shore. Um, Schultz, you might want to see this. The blurry face of the man in charge of handling these survey equipment appeared on our feed. He wiped the lens with his sleeve and turned the camera towards the ocean. At first, I didn't know what I was meant to be seeing exactly. The water was indeed eerily stagnant. It was as if looking at a murky pond, not the sea. Constellations lit up the sky, rivaling the moon with how brightly they shone. And then I finally made it out. There in the distance, beyond the glaciers, was what looked like a giant, uh, a giant lamppost. It took me a minute to realize that one of the lights littering the sky was actually connected to a narrow stem that projected upwards from the ocean's surface. It blended so seamlessly with the view that I would have never noticed it if I hadn't shifted ever so slightly. Once I did, however, I couldn't pry my eyes away from it. Its silver luminescence was intoxicatingly soothing, 
Like the sweet song of a siren, I drown you towards the center of a whirlpool. I could only imagine how alluring the dangling orb must have been in person. A few of the lads said that they were going to grab a boat and go check it out, but I told them that was a bad idea, but they wouldn't listen to me. One even got violent when I tried to stop them. They started swinging at me, the lunatic. The older man holding the camera explained, As a marine biologist, I'm not sure why it took me so long to realize what that thing obviously was. My best guess is that it was a part of its intended effect on the viewer, overriding our senses and causing us to ignore the clear sense of danger in order to lure us in. Much like an anglerfish, it lures in its prey. Before I could yell for them to get the heck out of there, it was too late. All I could do was watch as the black ocean suddenly collapsed in on itself, revealing the all-consuming maw that awaited beneath it. Teeth the size of radio towers broke the surface and eclipsed everything, eventually even the sky. And to my absolute horror, I realized that we were looking at the inside of an enormous jaw, which meant that the rest of it was somewhere behind the camera. Dear God, oh no. We heard the sound of ice cracking, followed by the panicked screams of her comrades. Our perspective tilted and then turned to static. No, no, no. The signal was lost. One by one, all of our remaining video feeds went dark as well. There was no point in trying to reach out again. The outpost was lost, swallowed by an eldritch monstrosity, along with everybody else there. And it was all my fault. If my hypothesis was correct and Creus was indeed an egg... Then logic dictates that what we just glimpsed must have been the thing that laid it. It was probably just protecting its nest. Calling it a feeling, but now that we've intruded on its territory, I don't think that it's going to stay put for much longer. Sooner or later, all of humanity will be reminded of how truly insignificant we are. It's only a matter of time. And well, that's it. That's the story of everything that happened here. Nobody ever came to retrieve us. I guess the government's idea of disposing of us was to simply cut off all communication and leave us for dead. It's been close to two years now of surviving in this frozen wasteland. Most, if not all, of the others have either expired or gone insane. I've salvaged enough food to last me for a couple of weeks, but I can't say the same for fuel, which is why I've decided that it's time to leave. If I'm going to freeze to death anyway, I'd rather be out there than in here. I'm leaving this file on my personal computer just in case somebody does find this place. To whomever is reading it, first of all, screw you for not coming sooner and second. You can find all of my research in the hidden compartment below my desk. Hopefully the majority of it is still legible. Do with it what you will. As for me, it's time for me to get going. Be safe and remember... If you happen to see a light out there, think twice before following it. Thank you to Omaha Steaks for sponsoring today's podcast. Now I know I've mentioned it before, but growing up some of my favorite memories were summer cookouts. There's nothing like getting the whole family and some friends together and sharing some mouth-watering food. And a big cornerstone of that experience for me was always Omaha Steaks. Any day is a good excuse for a cookout, but don't forget that Father's Day is just around the corner. And if you want a gift for Dad that everybody can enjoy, 
There isn't anything better than Omaha Steaks' new Dad's Want Steaks package. Just visit omahasteaks.com and type Mr. Creeps in the search bar. For just a 99 bucks, this limited-time package includes 16 delicious entrees that he's guaranteed to love, like smoky, tender, bacon-wrapped filet mignon, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breast. And for a sweet finish, delicious caramel apple tartlets. And as a special gift for my listeners, when you type Mr. Creeps in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you'll also get eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor made from 100% Omaha Steaks. And don't wait. Send Dad more than just a gift. Send him an experience that he'll love and can share with you. Again, Go to omahasteaks.com and type Mr. Creeps into the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees and 4 desserts, plus 8 free Omaha Steaks burgers. Thank you once again to Omaha Steaks for sponsoring today's episode. Don't Let Your Kids Crawl Up Drain Pipes Written by N. Silent It was the 1990s. I was like, what, 10 years old? Down by the neighborhood lake, kicking the dirt, exploring the little wooded area by the shore next to the dock. Too much TV, so I was forced to go outside. The trees around here were sparse little stalks. That's where I first met Timmy. He was crouching over something next to the clerping water along the banks. Hey, I said. Hey, Timmy said back. What's that? I pointed at what looked like a pile of mock. Check it out. It was a rotting bullhead fish. Its head splayed open into a pulpy mush, but the base and tail were still cleanly intact. Did you do that? I asked him. No way, I found it like this. I crouched down beside Timmy and said, uh, gross. Yeah, I know. I looked at the headless fish for a bit and then noticed a dull sheen from inside its body. Uh, look at that, I said. Timmy grabbed a bent stick with the bark crumpling off and pushed it into the neck of the fish. Out slid a coin. He held it between his fingers. The fish gunk gave it a slick membrane. It was a penny. You want it? Timmy asked. Uh, sure. I took the penny and I stuck it into my awkwardly fitting jeans. I hated jeans back then. They never fit right. You think it's magic? There was a sparkle in Timmy's eye. It was contagious, dangerous. Yeah, I said. I think so. Something weird was up with that fish. Why was it smashed like that? We decided to investigate the scene like a pair of detectives. We pushed along the thin whip-like branches and looked for clues until we ran into a grassy clearing. A neighbor's backyard. We paused. Mom says that I shouldn't go into people's property, Timmy said. I just shrugged and kept walking like I own the place. Timmy caught up, eyes appealed to the lake, afraid of getting yelled at by his neighbors. 
We cut through about ten sloping, manicured lots that slid right into the water. This is my backyard, I said. Timmy looked at the hill leading up to my big house. Wow, cool. We charged up the worn dirt path that Dad kept receding in a losing battle. Grass would never grow there. I slid open the glass door into the walkout basement. Shoes off, I said. And we ran through the comfortable carpet, up to the granite kitchen and straight to the stainless fridge. We both scarfed on a yogurt, and then a bowl of cereal, and then a slice of cheese, hardly speaking to each other. Cool house. I nodded as I chugged some OJ. That was messed up, he said. Yeah, I know. Can I see it? I reached into my pocket for the penny. I couldn't find it. Dude, I swear that I put it there. Um, check for any holes, Timmy said with panic all over his face. I kept digging. Eventually, I dropped my undies to fully confirm that there were no holes in my jean pockets. You saw me put it away. I swear that I didn't touch it, I said. Timmy then stuck his hand in my pocket and stopped. His jaw went slack as he slowly pulled out a penny from his pocket. He handed it to me. It still had the fish gunk on it. My eyes exploded. As much as any kid wants to believe in magic, there was still a small skeptic in me suggesting that it was a second penny. But I quieted all that nonsense immediately. Let's go back to the fish. We both raced downstairs and started cutting through backyards until we hit the little public wooded area that surrounded the dock. The headless bullhead fish was still there. We looked around, feeling watched. A crow caught in the distance. We both hunched over the remains. This time, I stuck my fingers in. We both gasped as I kid you not. I pulled out another funky penny. I put the penny to my nose and it stunk. Do you want it? I asked. Timmy took it and put it in his pocket. And do you think we can get rich? Asked Timmy. What if it gives us like a million pennies? I said. I became best friends with Timmy over the next few days. We were outside almost every day, still obsessing over the mystery of the headless fish. One time, he was over at my house and he took a bite of an apple, and he had started to choke. He had an apple drool sizzling down his chin. Timmy ran over to the sink and retched out the chunks. He started drinking water straight from the faucet, his feet dangling off the ground as he leaned over the counter. The pulp specks of apple slurry spun clockwise down the drain. That thing tasted gross, Timmy said. Gross, I said. And Timmy then said, My cousin Rick was fishing on the other side of the lake. He said that he saw a sleeping bag in the sewer drain. I bet it's a bomb. I bet he smashed that fish up too. We left my house to go check on the storm drain, heading the opposite way from where that penny-giving fish was. We cut through a different batch of fairway-worthy backyards that abutted the shore. We arrived panting upon a cement pipe that stuck out of a steep hillside. It was a big, wide drain. We didn't see any sleeping bag. 
but at the mouth of the drain, there was a penny. We both looked at each other. That's messed up. You want to go up to it? I asked. Timmy hesitated for a moment. Uh, sure, he eventually said. I went in first and Timmy followed just behind. At first, it was big enough to squat walk, but as the drain steepened in elevation up the hill, the hole got smaller. There was a thrill to this exploration, and we both could feel it. As the hole tightened and darkness became almost complete looking forward, we stopped. A cool gust of wind pushed my face with a hollow moan. You wanna... let's go back. We crawled backward for a moment until the tube was big enough to spin around. I scudded out back into the holy light at the end of the tunnel, blinded by suburbia. We gotta get flashlights, I said. You wanna tell my cousin? He would come too. Yeah, sure. Let's go back tomorrow. It rained the next day and Timmy didn't show. The day after that, I wasn't around because I had karate. I hated karate. Next few days, I waited anxiously around my house, hoping Timmy would ring my doorbell. The penny was warm in my soft palm. I kept eyeing it. Back-to-school commercials were littering my periphery, worsening my unease. I didn't know where Timmy lived. I wandered to the spot where we had first met, where we had found the pennies, and then we would hurry back home. I didn't want to be gone too long in case Timmy came by. I decided to take to my bike and search the neighborhood. It was a big black mountain bike with 21 gears. It always had issues when I switched them, so it was essentially a one gear that was comfortable up hills, but had enough torque to get moving down them. The further away that I got from the lake, the smaller the houses became. I approached Dinkler Road, that thick, busy street that Mom didn't allow me to cross. The houses that backed up to Dinkler were coupled together and unkempt. The yards were messy and had plastic toys hidden in the grass. I think my dad owned some rentals in this area. Down a few houses, I saw Timmy biking around with another dude. They had nerf swords and were doing some kind of joust. I rode over to them full bore. Danny, hey, I said, as cool as I could muster. This is my cousin, Rag. The fish is gone, I said. I know, Rick doesn't believe us. I told you we should have taken it back. I thought you were going to come over. I tried, but I didn't know what your house looked like in the front. And then I tried going through the backs and... Some lady started screaming at me, so I just booked it. Oh, okay. So, did you want to get some flashlights and check out that drain again? We already did, Timmy's cousin, Rick said. Barely, Timmy said. I ain't going back to that thing, it was freaky. I felt my neck prickle. I was savvy enough to not make a fuss about being left out. I had witnessed that weird kid at Jaren make broody fusses when the other kids weren't playing fair. Nobody liked Jaren. One recess, Albert found a skipping rock and chucked it at Jaren and split open his ear. 
The screams that Jaren made were cold right up to the spine. He drooled and cried and cursed and chased, but there was no way that he would come close to catching Albert. Albert almost always got first running around the track, except Naji, but she didn't speak English. Albert ran to the recess aid with Jaren right behind him. The aide had stopped Jaren in his fury, and he punched her in the mouth for it. Jaren got into more trouble than Albert that day. I should have just let it go, but I was jealous and wanted to go up that sewer. Let's do it, I said. Ma, give me the flashlight. I'll go first, I said. We were standing at the mouth of the tube about to begin our expedition. I was still a little salty about Timmy going back in there without me. Nah, man, it gets tight up there. I'm smaller. Rick was in front last time and froze up at that same spot. I was going to protest, but then I noticed another penny at the mouth of the tube. Something felt off. Whatever, I said. Timmy went in front with the flashlight in his hand, and I crawled behind him. We had made it past the spot where we had originally turned back. The tunnel had shrunk to half its size at this far end, and it was steep too. The lake was essentially a deep round pit with yards and parks drooping into it, but on this end, it was practically a sheer cliff up to the street above. I had to snake flat onto my belly to push forward. I crawled, half expecting a rat or something to jump at me. In the darkness, Timmy's flashlight movement was disorienting. I heard a faint scraping sound. They say that if you get stuck in a cave, the worst thing you can do is panic. Go ahead and say that it was all in my head but I could feel these cement walls around me tighten like a boa constrictor. I wanted to get back on all fours. I wanted to stand up. It started to become hard to breathe. I wanted to bend and look back, but I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. The tube tightened. I'm stuck, I groaned. Just keep crawling. I, I, can't, I can't breathe. I tried not to cry as the walls constricted on my chest. Let's go back, please. No, I'm stuck. I was speaking as if the wind was knocked out of me. I'll go forward and yell for help. Just stay here. No. Even in my panic, I felt ashamed for sounding like a girl when I screamed. Everything all right down there? A voice called out. It sounded like Rick, but softer. Rick. Danny's stuck. Go get help. Keep moving. There's a ladder here, said Rick's oddly calm voice. I want my mom, I said. I needed to get out of that tube before my eyeballs popped out. The walls squeezed tighter around my shoulders. It was going to crush me. I started to squirm and scream. Concrete dust tickled down the back of my neck. Or was it little spiders crawling on me? I couldn't move my arms to reach back there, making it worse. Mom, help! I want to go back! I want to go back! Mommy! My high-pitched squeals rang throughout the tube, deafening me. I'm going to get help, yelled Timmy. Don't leave me! And then Timmy looked back at me, flashlight in hand. Something about his demeanor soothed me. It's cool, he said. 
You're so close. Rick's voice washed over me. My breathing quickened. I could smell the dank concrete. I laid my cheek on its grit. Its hard coolness slowed things down a bit. I closed my eyes and the tube loosened its grip. Sorry, it's okay. I'm okay. I think I can keep going now, sorry. Uh, let's get to the ladder, follow me. We're really close, see? I opened my eyes and looked forward. Between the gaps of Timmy and the tube, I could see a clearing ahead. There was a musky blue light shining on a service ladder. The opening promised a place to stand up and stretch. God, that's all I wanted. I started to furiously warm myself forward as fast as I could, nipping at Timmy's heels. I was making little cry grunts with each push. I heard my jeans rip. You guys can climb out from here. Rick's call echoed down from above. I swelled at Rick's voice. The thought of having to crawl back through that pipe again. I wriggled myself forward even harder, avoiding that thought. We made it, Danny, we made it. Timmy said as his head popped out of the tube into the clearing. I heard a heavy scraping of metal above. With that, the rusted rectangular grate that covered the storm drain, some 60 pounds of iron, fell from 20 feet above. It split Timmy's promising skull instantly with a dull clonk. He was smiling at me as I saw all of his life's possibilities splatter into a brainy halo, mixing in with the damp leaves and twigs and a couple of Keystone Light beer cans. I screamed for help but no one answered me. I begged for Timmy to keep moving but I knew that he was done. I screamed and screamed but I knew if I didn't get moving, something bad was going to happen to me too. I had to push the rest of Timmy's body forward and crawl over him to climb up the ladder. Rick was nowhere to be found. It took forever for my horrified mom to figure out what I was saying had happened. In the end, it was determined to be a terrible accident. When the police eventually talked to Rick, he vehemently denied ever being there. I know that I heard his voice and I don't blame him. I would have denied ever being around too if I had dropped a super grate on someone's head. But then again, something about his voice sounded different. Off. All I really know that is if Timmy hadn't insisted on going first, it would have been my brains oozing down from that storm drain pipe. It still haunts me, and I still can't shake the feeling that the drain wanted it to be me. Does anybody else remember The Invasion? Written by The Dark Void 79. I can't be the only one who remembers. I just can't. It's been over a week since it happened, but no matter how many people I ask, and no matter how hard I try to look for evidence, I just can't find anything to prove what happened. To make matters worse, those responsible for what happened are onto me. I don't know how long I'll be safe before they do something. How is it possible that billions of people forgot about the invasion? How is it possible that you all forgot the death and devastation? How is it possible that they managed to wipe everyone's mind but mine? 
It feels so frustrating knowing it happened, yet finding no one else who remembers. Every time I ask those who I knew weren't one of them, the reaction that I get is always the same. A dismissive shake of the head and laughter. For some reason, they always think that I'm either pulling some kind of prank on them or that I've lost my mind. But I'm not. This is no prank and this is not some crazy dream either. I know the difference between a dream and reality. There are too many details. Too many memories ingrained in my mind to make it just a dream. If it was a dream, then it would have been foggy at best. And I would have forgotten bits and pieces of it. But the memory is clear, and the fear that I felt during the invasion is still embedded in my head, and it still makes me shake every time I remember it. I couldn't have dreamt it. What I remember is real and I'm sure of it, but no one else can remember, at least no one that I know. I have never felt alone like this before, but I guess it's now up to me to tell everyone what happened. Maybe just maybe my recounting of the invasion would remind it all to you, or at least to some of you. Now, I was and still am in the army. I'm a platoon officer, a second lieutenant. For my position, I wasn't able to get the whole picture of what had happened. However, I did get enough information from news reports and intelligence briefings to paint a good enough picture. What I'm about to tell you now is my retelling of the events from what I remember. So, uh, let me start where it all began, on the day that spaceship entered Earth's orbit. It came as a shock to us all, especially to the various space agencies around the world. One day, everything was normal, and then the next day came and we now had a massive spacecraft orbiting Earth. No one knew how it got there, and NASA claimed that it would be impossible for them, or anyone watching space to miss an object that large heading towards Earth. If it had entered the solar system or made a trajectory towards Earth, someone should have noticed. So it seemed that the spaceship had just appeared out of nowhere, as if it had teleported there. One of the Intel boys, a friend of mine from Division HQ, told me that observations from NASA and Space Force satellites, as well as various high-powered ground-based telescopes, revealed that the object was a spherical-shaped vehicle made out of an unknown material and having a diameter of 10 miles. Because of this description, many people who saw it began referring to it as the Death Star. It seemed appropriate at the time, but now that I think of it, and knowing the purpose of the Death Star in the films, the idea of naming an alien spaceship after it would do little to reassure people. My friend would later tell me that this name did indeed displease the higher-ups, as many members from the government's upper echelon felt uncomfortable and fearful of the unknown sphere and Earth's orbit. Soon, though, it was the general public's turn to fear. It didn't take long before professional and amateur astronomers began releasing images of the spaceship. As telescopes looked up at the sky to stare at the visitor from God knows where, Almost immediately, panic ensued, as governments and people wondered where the spaceship came from, and what those inside of it wanted with us. Major world issues such as the pandemic, global tension, 
environmental disasters, a fuel crisis, and many more were completely dropped and forgotten. As headlines everywhere covered the gigantic orbiting vessel around the planet. Within the first few days, the panic turned into general hysteria, as many people in major population centers started to panic buy. This action then resulted in shortages at overstrained groceries and markets, which in turn resulted in more panic. As this panic raged, people began to roam the streets in search of any place where supplies were still abundant. Scattered among these mobs of panicked people were the lawbreakers, who wanted to ride the tide in order to hide their crimes. Soon enough, cases of looting, vandalism, and assault began popping up. And with the chaos and disorder, it became harder and harder for law enforcement to control the crowds and to maintain order. So, that's when we were called up. One moment, we were watching the chaos unfold in national news. The next, we were sent up on a 6x6 truck to New York City in order to assist the police and the National Guard in restoring order to the state's economic center. The state governor had just declared a martial law that day, and within a few hours of the declaration, we were setting up checkpoints on all the roadways of New York City. Order did seem to return after this, although everyone was still on edge, as the alien spaceship continued to mock us with its silence. In an attempt to learn more about the alien vessel, and to gain communication with them, since all ground-based attempts had failed, NASA announced a plan where they would send out their most experienced astronauts and rendezvous with the massive spaceship. This was met with mixed reactions by the public, as some feared that disturbing the spaceship would trigger a catastrophe. Others, however, supported the idea, as their curiosity to know what the spaceship was urged them on. I belonged to the latter group. I believed that we needed to make contact and figure out what these aliens wanted. The sooner that we know the answer, the faster we can react to their intentions. However... The mission didn't go as planned. As the astronauts' vehicle reached orbit, they suddenly disappeared. Without any warning, telemetry and communication was lost, and satellites would later confirm that their vehicle could no longer be located. Within the blink of an eye, a commercial crew programmed spaceship and its four crew members disappeared without a trace. To make matters worse, a couple hours after the loss of the astronauts, some kind of event occurred all over the planet, striking all major cities around the globe. In New York City, I got to witness this event firsthand, since I was inside when the city was engulfed in a massive bright light. I remember feeling no pain or terrible sensation from this event, although the light emitted was blinding, as its brightness prevented me from seeing anything around me. It didn't last long though, and after a few seconds it disappeared, leaving everyone dazed and unharmed. However, a shocking revelation came after that. As we all looked up into the sky, we could see hundreds of strange orbs hovering above the buildings of the city. Through a pair of binoculars, I saw that the orbs were smooth and perfect spheres, with their surface being made out of some kind of silver-like material. Staying above the buildings for a good few minutes, they soon began to descend in unison, 
with the orbs navigating their way towards the streets. Soon enough, one of them had lowered itself on top of the checkpoint that we were manning near Times Square. I was at this specific checkpoint at this time, inspecting the positions of one of my platoon squads, when the orbs slowly came towards us in a smooth and straight flight down. As it got closer, I got a better look at the strange object, and from my rough estimates, I would say that it was around 20 feet in diameter. Keeping my eyes fixed on the object, while having my men train their weapons on it, we watched as the orb continued its descent until it was floating just five feet off the ground. Immediately positioning ourselves to surround it, I passed on a strict order for everyone to maintain proper trigger discipline. The intentions of these aliens were still unknown during that time, and I didn't want to be the officer responsible for starting an interstellar war. If only I knew better. If only we all knew better. Then again, what difference would it have made? Our guns, rockets, and our most sophisticated weapons stood no chance against them. Soon enough, I became a witness to their sheer strength as I watched the orb morph into something from nightmares. With a fleshy, unsettling sound and a disgusting, terrible sight, the outer layer of the orb began to peel off, revealing hundreds of eyes all over its surface. Watching in shock and horror, all of us stood there with uncertainty and fear. As the silver-like skin of the orb was removed, in order to show the true face of these hideous creatures. With its smooth exterior gone, the orb now looked completely different. Staring at it, I felt a shiver run down my spine as I noticed multiple sets of eyes stare back at me. Unblinking and cold, those eyes stared at my very soul as it kept its gaze directly at me. The other sets of eyes did the same to the rest of the platoon as we all stared in horror. As we remained paralyzed in fear, the orb-like creature continued with its transformation as it began to grow out dozens upon dozens of thin ten feet long arms out of its body. Popping up between some of the eyes, these arms extended from its main body, stretching far as the sharp claw-like fingers at its end flexed itself before us. All of us stared in awe at this creature that was once the clean orb. This was nothing like any creature that we had seen before. Standing frightened with their rifles aimed at the creature, my men did their best to hold their ground and await my orders. But I didn't know what to do. I just stood there and stared. I know that I should have given the order to fire, or at least told them to distance themselves from it. But that's just hindsight talking. At the time, the creature may have been ugly, but it still showed no hostile intent. Like I said, I didn't want to be the one responsible for starting a war. And taking advantage of the inaction, the creature decided to make the first move. In a sudden and swift motion, its many hands began to stretch farther and reach out towards us, with some of them managing to catch a few of my soldiers who stood too close to it. Quickly shaken out of our paralyzed and mesmerized state, we watched down with horror as these arms lifted our friends and brought them close to its body. Looking on with both fascination and fear, I saw the hands shove these poor unlucky men against its skin 
which seemed hard and firm based on the sound of the impact. And then they were all slowly sunk into its flesh-like surface. As I observed the men phase through the skin and be swallowed up into the unknown interior of this creature, screaming and flailing in panic, they desperately tried to get away. However, the long, horrible hands pushed them deeper into the skin, as the body itself seemed to absorb and swallow them. The next thing we knew, the men captured by the orb had vanished, having sunken deep within it. This was then followed by the sight of blood dripping from the creature's many eyes, as if it were crying out the liquid. A steady stream of this blood flowed out of it, to the pool began to form on the street below. What we witnessed was more than enough of a signal for us to know that the creature was hostile, and the remaining men in my platoon didn't wait for my order to open fire. Unleashing all they had, the men began peppering the creature with rifle fire, but despite its seemingly fleshy skin, the bullets did a little damage to it. Every single shot was merely absorbed by the creature, as it swallowed the lead and absorbed it. Even the eyes seemed impervious to bullets, as they merely took in the bullets and stared at the one that had fired at it. Reacting to our actions, I noticed some of the hands begin to extend out once more, as the whole body of the creature began to move towards my direction. Seeing this, I ordered the men nearby to fall back quickly, or else suffer the same fate as their unfortunate friends. Most of those near me managed to quickly back away, but the saw gunner from the squad moved slower than the rest. Firing at full auto, he let loose his weapon against the advancing creature, as if trying to cover his squad as they repositioned themselves. I desperately tried to order him to stop the foolish attempt and immediately retreat, while his squad leader did the same thing. But he didn't listen and instead continued to pour it out on the creature. It wasn't until the creature got within 15 feet away from him that he finally decided to turn around and run towards us, but by then it was too late. Lunging an arm at him, as the creature's claws managed to snag him just as he was turning around, we tried to cover him by firing at the creature, but just like before, it had no effect. To our frustration, we could do nothing more than just fire and watch, as the creature slammed him against its skin and absorbed his body. After this, I knew that I had to make a decision quickly. I contemplated if we should hold our ground and wait for reinforcements or retreat and reorganize. Listening to the comms network, I could hear the panicked cries of our other checkpoints, as similar creatures attacked their positions. Reinforcements were clearly not going to come soon if I had asked for them. At the same time as I was making my decision, an explosion erupted from the other side of the creature. Noticing a trail of smoke, I realized that some of the men on the other side decided to fire their javelin launcher to see if it would work against the creature. It didn't. Instead, all they did was attract the creature towards them, as it began floating towards their direction. Realizing that no weapon in our inventory could stop it, I gave the order to mount up and abandon the checkpoint. I sent out a similar order to the rest of my squads manning other checkpoints, but I got nothing back from them. Heading towards the Humvees parked nearby, 
We quickly got on board and decided to head towards the direction of the Empire State Building, where the battalion headquarters was supposed to be. At the same time, we made plans to drive our vehicle along the side of the road, hopefully beyond the reach of the creature's arm, and rescue the squad members on the opposite side. However, the sudden screams that erupted from the direction, as well as the sight of them being lifted up and absorbed by the creature, and told us that it was too late. I felt a surge of fright run through me at this point, as I knew there had been substantial distance between them and the creature. It seemed like it was moving faster now. Not wanting to know if my theory was right, I gave the order to move out, and so we left on one Humvee and began navigating the road towards the Empire State Building. As we drove, we saw a lot of pools and trails of blood along the road, a mark left by the creatures after consuming their victims. Doing our best to avoid any more encounters with the creatures, we tried to avoid following the trails, as it might lead us to one of them. Many civilians were already on the street at that point, trying their best to flee from the creatures, but I noticed there weren't as many as I thought there would be. I assumed that a good number of the population in the area either decided to remain in their homes and tied there, or head underground in the subways. Attempts to contact my other squads were met with static, and similar attempts to get in touch with my company commander and battalion HQ were also fruitless. As we continued our cautious journey towards battalion headquarters, taking detours along the way in order to avoid the creatures, I began to notice something strange occurring at the Empire State Building. Various creatures were flying up towards the tower, while at the top a gigantic orb had formed. Based on what I was seeing, I assumed the orb was made out of multiple creatures, as I saw them fly towards it and merge into the larger orb. Watching this unfold, I began to wonder if it was still a good idea to head towards the buildings. Eventually, our plans were changed when we had encountered two soldiers by the entrance of a building. Turning my gaze towards them, I noticed that they were signaling us to side off and stop. Parking just in front of them, I soon realized that one of the soldiers was Major Collins, my battalion commander. Recounting his story, he said that the creatures somehow managed to phase through the walls of the buildings and grab men from the outside. With such power, it didn't take long for them to annihilate the staff of the headquarters with only him and his RTO being lucky enough to escape the building. Any attempts to contact Regimental and Division HQ was met with empty static also, although he did say they managed to intercept a brief transmission from a National Guard division, which reported similar attacks were happening at Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, London, Moscow, Paris, Manila, and Tokyo, too. He assumed that there were many more attacks happening in other cities around the world, but they haven't had contact with anyone else to confirm this. This news severely demoralized us as we realized that the whole world was under attack. Formulating a plan, Major Collins said that the best thing to do now was to escape from Manhattan and to, to head for New Jersey, where we might find some kind of organized military force. Realizing that it was too dangerous to go that far above ground, we decided that we would abandon the Humvee and instead move on foot through the subways. However, 
As we made our way to the nearest subway, a bright light blinded us once more. This time, though, the light was different. Instead of the white brightness of earlier, the light now was red, and its impact more harmful. I felt my body heat up as the light continued to intensify. It was a terrible sensation, discomforting at first, but slowly becoming more and more unbearable. The pain seemed to stab every nerve of my body, as I felt like I was being burnt alive. Overwhelmed by the sensation, I began to scream while flailing my hands as if it would do something to stop the pain. It was terrible, and I looked around and tried to listen to my surroundings, hoping to find any kind of help that would relieve me from my experience. There was none though. I couldn't see anything but red and I couldn't hear anything but silence. It seemed like I was suffering alone, but just as the painful sensation was reaching its peak, it abruptly stopped as all the burning feeling disappeared. In a sudden change, the pain was gone, and as I looked around, I noticed that the light was gone and I could see once more. But as I looked around my surroundings, I noticed something odd. I was no longer in the streets of Manhattan. Instead of seeing tall skyscrapers, the bloody streets, and the panicked expressions of my fellow survivors I was with, what I saw was the mundane environment of my officer's quarters, the same one that I felt before we were ordered out. Standing in the middle of the room, I felt confused and lost. This was the last place I expected to be. Looking around in disbelief, I soon began rummaging around my room, trying to find out what had happened. The date was still the same though. The time was also the same, and yet where I stood was no longer the same. I'm not sure what had happened, but I'm sure what I experienced was not some kind of dream. What I remember actually happened, yet somehow no one else could remember it. When I exited the room and talked to the other officers that I shared the bachelor's office quarters with, they stared at me and laughed. They were convinced that I was pranking them. To my great frustration, I couldn't find anyone else who remembered what had happened. I just felt even more lost, as I couldn't explain what had happened. However, this wasn't the only thing that I found strange. Going around the base, I was shocked to notice unfamiliar faces in my unit. People I didn't know were taking up the places who had died in New York. The soldiers that I saw dying in the streets of New York were no longer there, and instead they had been replaced by men that I had never seen before. I really don't know who they were. Yet everyone acted as if they had been in the unit the entire time. I didn't trust them though, and I was wary of them as I did my best to talk to them as little as possible. Avoiding the new men and continuing my efforts to figure out what had happened, I began asking the men that I was certain were with me during the invasion. I decided to first talk to the squad leader that I had been with in Manhattan, questioning him on whether he felt something odd or if he had been having strange dreams. In response, he just stared at me as if I was insane, and gave awkward replies saying that he felt fine. Any attempts to talk to anyone who had been there would be met with the same result. If there was someone who did remember, then I would have heard them talk about it by now. So I gave up on the interview, knowing that it was attracting some unwanted attention, instead of helping in my efforts. No one in the unit remembered. No one except for me. 
I did, however, try to investigate more about the replacement men. It baffled me how they could simply take over the lives of others, as if they were really a part of those lives that they were in, and not mere fillers to the men who had died. Because of this, I decided to write to the father of Sergeant Henry, a member of my platoon who I was certain had died in New York and was replaced by a new man who called himself David. David did not look like Henry, but he seemed to be trying his best to be like Henry. He was replacing that man's life, but as to what purpose, I don't know. I wondered how deep they managed to replace Henry and the memories of the survivors, and whether it was only with those he normally interacted with every day, or if it was also affected family members who he hadn't seen for a long time. It was because of this curiosity that I decided to write to Henry's father. From previous conversations with Henry, I knew that he and his father were not on good terms. Henry had decided to join the army against his father's wishes, and because of that, the two hadn't talked since the day Henry had left the family home and signed up. His family info was still in the unit's records, although the name and physical info on file was David's rather than Henry's. Aside from that though, his parents' name and address looked the same as when I last saw them. Taking the address, I then wrote Henry's father a letter telling him that his son had shaped up to be a good soldier and that he should be proud to know that he was a sergeant in the army now. The letter that I got in return nearly broke me. He informed me that he had no son named Henry, but he did have, and I quote, an ungrateful, disobedient, and reckless son named David. He then went on a rant about David and explained how he wasted his life by joining the army instead of following him in the family business. I felt shocked, drained, and after having read that, since Henry had told me the same story before, it was the same story, only a different person. After that, I found myself wondering, maybe there wasn't really a Henry. Maybe it was David all along. Why was I worrying over nothing? Should I be believing what I remember? Was I having false memories? The feeling defeated, I almost gave up. For a moment, I thought that it might have indeed been a dream or I may have indeed started going crazy. At one point, I was already contemplating if I should tell my captain about what I was experiencing and ask if I should schedule myself for a psychological evaluation. However, before I could fully give up, I saw what the replacement men really were. It was in my quarters that night, staring out my window and wondering what had happened to me. Looking up at the night sky, I stared at the full moon and felt strange at how I remembered it being brown before, not white. Shaking my head, I couldn't help but feel frustrated, not knowing if I was going crazy or not. Finally thinking that I needed to shrink to see what was wrong with me, I decided to turn in for the night and get some rest. However, before I could turn away from the window, I saw something that caught my eye. As I glanced towards that direction, I felt a shot of fear go through me as I stared wide-eyed. Two figures were walking towards the BOQ building that I was in, yet my eyes fell on the one that was disfigured and horrifying, like a blob of flesh and eyes. The figure that moved looked like a monster. I felt petrified staring at it, as it somehow moved forward, swaying as it did so. I stared at the monster with disgust and fear, as I wondered where it had come from. 
I had to blink a couple of times to make sure that I wasn't imagining it. But as I continued to stare, it remained right in front of me. I wanted to hide, to get away from that thing, as I felt that it was related to what I remember I'd experienced in New York. However, something curious attracted my attention. The figure next to it, a lieutenant that I knew and shared the BOQ with, stood next to the monster, yet paying no mind to the horror. This shocked me as much as the sight of the terrible creature. I wonder how he wasn't terrified or unnerved by it. But as the two moved closer to the building, they were soon covered by the structure's shadow, which blocked off the natural moonlight from above. Once this happened, my eyes widened once more as I stared out intently. The monster, the terrible, disgusting thing was now gone. In its place was a man, one of the replacement men who took the place of another officer that I knew. Shock woke up my mind as I realized that the horrifying monster was that replacement man. Although I had seen him as an ordinary person just like everyone else, the light of the moon somehow revealed the truth to me. As I took this piece of information in, I began to realize that all of the replacement men must truly be terrible monsters of flesh and horror beneath their facades. I felt goosebumps run through my skin as I suddenly felt cold. In my platoon alone, nearly two-thirds of my command were replacement men. The thought of those monsters surrounding me every day scared me. That night, I remained awake, fearing that one of those fleshy monsters would burst into my quarters and swallow me itself, just like how those creatures had killed my men in New York. After what I had learned, I stayed away from the replacement men more than ever. So now I'm here. Searching online if anyone else remembered the invasion. I can't be the only one. There has to be somebody else who remembers. Nearly everyone is forgotten, but I hope that there's someone else like me. But this message isn't just a search for those who remember. This is also a warning for those who don't. I want you to know that those creatures are still there, and they still aren't done with us. What they want, I'm not sure but I can tell that it's nothing good. So be careful then to keep an eye out for them. Also, can anyone tell me if they feel something is wrong with the moon? I know that I said it helped me reveal the true nature of the replacement men, but I still feel something strange about it. The other night, I was staring at it, wondering why I remember it being a different color, when I suddenly felt the uneasy feeling of it staring back at me, as if each crater were eyes bearing down on me. I fell through the fabric of reality and something followed me when I came back. Written by Kessel the Viking I fell into a hole yesterday. It wasn't a hole in the ground or even a manhole. It was a hole in the fabric of reality. I was walking down the sidewalk in the middle of my small town. The day was the same as any other, moderately warm, dry and sunny. People were meandering about as usual, perusing the various shops on the strip and talking amongst themselves. It wouldn't have mattered if I paid attention or not because one minute, I was on flat ground to the next. I was falling. 
The abyss that I found myself in was like a plasma, almost like I was swimming, but it quickly ended because I was on the ground once again. It was the very same sidewalk in my very same small town. At the time, I couldn't believe what had just happened because nothing had changed. However, that was only until I noticed everything was gone, and as I had mentioned earlier, the sky was sunny before I had fallen into the hole. But now, it was dark and dismal like a thunderstorm was rolling in, and the town was completely devoid of any life. The air felt heavy too, like the gravity had increased. There were vehicles, but they had no occupants. None of the streetlights worked, and all of the shops were barren and locked up. But if I were to say I was confused, I would be understanding my perplexity. I was thoroughly bewildered and admittedly scared. I started to walk and wander. Without a way back or a destination in mind, it was all that I could do. But the sensation that I was being watched would not leave my body. From the moment I appeared or rather reappeared, I felt eyes on my back and it didn't matter which way I turned. I walked around the corner of the shopping district and then the park came into view. It was a typical park you would find in a small town with a place for children to play and an assortment of trees and benches adorning the sidewalk surrounding it. A subtle breeze whipped up like a giant had stumbled afar in the distance and sent a quickly escaping breath in my direction. I found that the lack of sound in people was quite fear-inducing when it came to the abandonment of an entire town. Usually, I wouldn't mind the absence of humanity, but when it's in a place where humans should be, well, that's a totally different scenario. My eyes scanned the scenery of the park and something caught them. Next to one of the trees was a thin shadow standing like a frozen image in time, but it disappeared the moment I tried to focus on it. Still, I stopped walking and began to watch intently. Then, through my peripheral vision, I saw a flashing glimpse to the left of me. I shot my head in its direction and saw the tail end of a shadowy foot disappearing behind a brick wall. I began to walk towards it until I saw another glimpse, this time to the right. There were like little dancing wisps of darkness in the corners of my eyes that I couldn't focus on or else they would go away. If I were a child, I might have found it quite humorous, but something about them felt sinister, and that thought kept me on my toes. Their overall presence offered a sense of a skulkingly malicious intent, as if they simply wished for me to close my eyes so they could get close enough to take my life. As someone who partakes in rather unconventional ways of thinking, I wondered if these shadows were the residents of wherever this actually was, or perhaps they had killed them. Suddenly, I felt a razor-sharp pair of claws rake into the soft skin of my shoulder with a grip-like vice. I spun around while uttering a sound of excruciating pain to see the fast disappearance of another shadowy being. The attack all but confirmed my assumption that they were violent and or evil and that was all that I needed to know. I quickly realized that I shouldn't remain out in the open. There was a pharmacy nearby with a second story that I imagined was an apartment. These smaller towns often had shop owners living above said shops, 
and the sign on the door is still red open. I was surprised that upon the initial cursory scan of my surroundings that I didn't notice not all the buildings were actually locked and empty. I ran quickly to the door and pulled until its rusted hinges gave way and it allowed me to enter. The shelves were still fully stocked with an all manner of things from medicine to snacks, but everything was long since expired. It was still 2022. The newspaper confirmed that, but the products were slightly different and definitely out of date. I wasn't able to stay on the bottom floor for long because every time I turned my head, I saw another fleeting shadow escaping from my sight. The unfortunate reality was, I didn't have any idea if I was safe or not. In terms of how shadows work theoretically, they should be able to exist anywhere a shadow does, natural or otherwise. However, I took my chances with the upper floor anyway. My shoulder was bleeding profusely and that was the second reason that I chose the pharmacy. Where it simply based on impulse, I probably would have tried to find a vehicle that was unlocked with a key still inside. But the fact was, I needed bandages and although I was no longer on the shop floor, the apartment above assuredly had what I sought. I climbed the wooden staircase behind the front counter to the door at the top. It was unlocked and I breathed a sigh of relief for not having to break it down. But the door did have something heavy against it because I exerted an awful lot of strength just to push it open. On the other side was a dresser pressed against the door in a barricaded fashion. The apartment appeared as though a struggle had ensued. Papers, food, money, and all manner of different things were scattered across the ground. But the thing that dominated and demanded attention from the entire entryway was the blood. Copious amounts of it lined the floor and walls, however, it was dry. I wasn't sure how long it had been there, but I was more curious about how it got there. I tried the light switch to no avail. I should have guessed that because of the inactive streetlights outside, and I decided to pull out my phone. No signal, of course. But the flashlight still worked for as long as the battery would last. Now luckily, I'm a chronic battery charger. I need to keep my electronics fully charged as often as possible, or else my mind can't stop thinking about it. And yeah, I know it's bad for the batteries. The light emitting from my phone showed even more blood. It was splattered with an intensity as if someone were painting with it. But I couldn't delay my shoulder was bleeding and that only added to the horrendously commanding color of red in the entryway. I wandered carefully down the adjacent hallway while slowly checking each room along the way. Finally, near the end, I found the bathroom. If any place would have bandages, it would be there. As I pushed the door open and I shined my light within, I almost fell backwards. A decrepit human skeleton was in the bathtub. It was then that I noticed the blood trail led into the bathroom right to the top. Several bloody handprints were covering the outside of the top, leading me to believe that whoever this was, they were the ones that the blood belonged to. I couldn't determine their cause of death, but if the wound in my shoulder was anything to go by, then I assumed those shadow things were the reason. When the adrenaline caused by fear had faded away, I slowly climbed my feet and began to search the medicine cabinet. 
I kept turning the light towards the tub because my frightened mind half expected the skeleton to shamble back to life. However, there wasn't any movement to be had and I put my thoughts to rest. The medicine cabinet was mostly empty, much to my dismay, but it did have gauze and peroxide which was better than nothing. After disinfecting the wound, I wrapped my shoulder the best that I could. When the gauze touched the bleeding trenches that the shadow creature had left behind, I felt an immensely burning pain. It was almost as bad as receiving the injury to begin with. And when the pain subsided enough for me to continue, I moved back into the entry hall and out of respect for the dead, I closed the bathroom door. Now that I thought I had a moment of tranquility, I decided to search the rest of the rooms for anything that might be useful to me. There was still a semblance of light outside and the rooms with windows were fairly lit, which meant more phone battery for me. I purposely avoided the rooms that faced the streets below because of the danger lurking outside. I didn't know if those shadow things could come inside or not and I certainly didn't want to mess around and find out. The first room I thoroughly searched was the bedroom. It appeared that this apartment only had one, aside from the room being in complete disarray. There really wasn't anything you would consider to be interesting or of a helpful nature. The bedspread was tossed about and the old wooden desk against the opposite wall had stacks of paper rising like small towers off of it. If the pharmacist was the one who had lived here, they didn't keep a very organized environment. The possibility that this was all a product of those shadow beings did cross my mind and it helped me rationalize the chaotic state of each room. After finding nothing of interest, I left the bedroom. Across the hall was a study of some kind. The room was quaint and equally as disorganized as the bedroom. There was a medium-sized bookshelf against the right wall and another desk against the left. This room had two windows, but both of them had blinds obscuring the outside world. Like the desk in the bedroom, this one had stacks of papers on it as well. Most of them appeared to be documents in relation to pharmaceutical accounts and other business matters. However, there was one lone scrap of paper with a quickly scrawled bit of writing on it that caught my eye. I picked it up and held my phone's flashlight close to it, and this is what it said. They came out of nowhere. Nobody knows anything about them and everything is going to crap really quick. All I know is that I won't be going outside until this all blows over. I have enough supplies to last for a couple of months if I ration correctly and plenty of pills to pass the time. Now it wasn't the most insightful note, but it did give me a modicum of background regarding what had happened. The rest of the room had nothing more to discover, so I left and decided to search the room that I dreaded the most. The living room. I dreaded it because the windows were uncovered and the prospect of seeing a fleeting shadow in the corner of my eye. Man, it sent a shiver down my spine. So, as I inched closer to the living room, I crouched down almost to a crawl despite the searing pain in my shoulder which seemed to be getting worse. The contents of the living room were slowly laid bare, and two fully exposed windows lit the room enough for me to not use my phone but after seeing what was in there, I wish they didn't. Two more skeletons, one awfully small, it must have been a child, and the other likely its mother. I felt an immense pain in my heart for the sight before me and almost chose not to search the room for the sake of leaving the dead to their place.
but I wasn't going back outside. Not yet, at least. Under one of the windows was another scrawled letter, but this one was quite a bit longer and held far greater detail than the other. It said, Come on, I've spent the last two days by this window watching the streets outside. Those things just keep claiming victim after victim, and I feel helpless. But I don't want to die and I don't plan on it unless some of those things can come inside. So far, I haven't seen one enter a building, which bodes well for me. The letter trailed off there, but then started up again further down, however, the handwriting was different. If anyone ever finds this, I hope you're well. The man who owns this pharmacy let me and my son in, but was wounded in the process, badly. I don't have any sort of medical background, and he's currently passed out in the bathroom, but there's a lot of blood. I'm afraid that he might die, and there isn't anything that I can do about it. I checked his fridge and found that all the food had gone bad as well as everything that's downstairs. I'm so hungry and my son is too. The letter ended there, but I turned my head to look at the skeleton of the mother and saw another piece of paper in her hand. I crawled over to her and luckily, I was able to see the writing without removing it from her hand. It was weakly written, the words were faded and barely legible, and it said, So hungry. The screams have stopped outside. The pharmacist is dead and I fear my son and I will be next. I've only been able to scrounge a small canned goods, but those all go to my son, as any good mother would do. I thought that the light would keep them at bay, but I was wrong. It only delays their attack. And there doesn't seem to be anything to stop them, and it's only a matter of time before they come in here. Either that or we starve to death. Forgive me, son, I try to keep us alive. A single tear has streamed down my face. I felt for this woman, for what she had suffered for the sake of her son. That unfortunate reality caused her to perish, and it would seem her poor boy followed shortly after. But her note did offer valuable information. Although the part about the light my shoulder can attest to the damaging accuracy there. Perhaps it had something to do with the overcast preventing direct sunlight. I wasn't allowed time to think any further because a sound from below caught my ear. It was reminiscent of the fluttering of a bird's wing but much louder. And then it was accompanied by crashing and banging like the shelves in the pharmacy were being toppled in a furious rage. Could shadows really cause destruction on that level? They could, of course, if they weren't actually shadows and just beings that appeared to be. My instincts took over and I rose to my feet too quickly to move against a wall. I had an unrestricted view of an intersection outside, where I first appeared and noticed several beings prancing around just out of sight. While they may have appeared innocent in their movement, I knew they weren't. The ones that I could see watching me from behind various objects below held a piercing malice in their eyes. It was something that I could sense like a lion stalking you in the Serengeti. The noise beneath me began to migrate towards these stairs leading to the apartment. As far as I was aware, shadows couldn't produce footsteps. That's scientifically impossible as darkness holds no weight. Unless the fundamentals of that reality work differently than our own. Or, as I said before, they weren't shadows at all. I rushed to the door already, feeling trapped like the apartment was my own personal prison. The stairs outside creaked with the ominous sound of footsteps, 
creeping up slowly but with an air of malevolence. Then, they all stopped as if everything that once existed beyond the walls had vanished away. I stood with my ear pressed against the door. Silence. Suddenly, one of these shadow beings phased through the door in my own body before stopping just in front of me. I was able to study its gruesome form for a short time as it faced away from me. The creature was surrounded by a shadow-like aura that concealed the nightmarish entity beneath. It was tall, lanky, and pale. It wore no clothing, only the shadow. The body was similar to a human's if a human being appeared as a hairless, withered creature from the abyss. I covered my mouth to silence my breathing and kept completely still. The shadow creature tilted its bald, white head from left to right, while produced in a series of low grunts and groans. I wasn't able to discern if it was trying to communicate or use some form of echolocation to detect me, but it terrified me nonetheless. And then it sniffed the air with an audible inhale that rattled my nerves. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to stifle my breathing entirely, because a small breath passed between my fingers and the creature froze in place. Slowly, it turned its head and revealed two jagged rows of needlepoint teeth, with a distended mandible revealing a tunnel of black deep in its throat. The moment it saw me, it produced a horrendous noise, likened to a guttural roar that made my spine tense up. The vibration of the cry crawled its way through my body and caused my hair to rise from fear. It tried to lunge at me, but I ducked and crawled to the other side before standing up. It began to chase me through the apartment. It tore into the walls with its own claws like a knife through butter, and the only thing I could do was make for the door. When it had backed me into a corner, I had an idea. I remembered it had passed through the door as if it wasn't even there. So I attempted to run through it and was able to escape its entrapment by moving through its warped and darkened form. I sprinted for the door and flung it open. It was right behind me. The destructive sounds emanating from the apartment made it quite obvious, but I gave it no quarter. I descended the stairs as quickly as I could and entered the pharmacy once again. But this time, more than four of the shadow beings were standing guard. They all turned their attention towards me immediately, and I didn't hesitate. I made great strides across the shop floor to the front door, before pushing it open so that I could get back on the street. Once I did, all of the windows to the pharmacy shattered, and the shadow beings floated out like a looming mist aiming for my demise. I didn't stop and wait, but instead, I continued to run down the street back to where this all began. The beings started to emerge from every conceivable direction around me and were all quickly collapsing on my position. They shrieked and groaned and roared with voracious intensity, and my body was beginning to give out from the swift expenditure of energy. But a saving grace appeared ahead. For whatever reason, the spot that I had arrived at was highlighted by a single ray of sunlight. I rushed towards it without knowing what might happen. The shadow grew closer and closer with the rippling auras wildly raging like black blazes as they outstretched their claws. I had almost reached the spot of light when one of the shadows had closed in on me. It floated behind my back and swept at my calf. I tried to move my leg but its long claws ripped into the muscle and it knocked me to the ground. Despite the pain and the blood, I crawled on my forearms as fast as I could scraping the skin against the concrete sidewalk. 
My hands touched the light and the shadows screeched from every direction as a mass of them reached me all at once. I thought that I was done for. And suddenly, I was falling again. I fell through the plasma-like space until I appeared on the other side. The same sidewalk. Home. It was dark now, but there were cars being driven, which meant that there were people. Since it was late, there wasn't anyone walking on the sidewalk any longer, but that was good for me because I had no way of explaining what happened to me logically. I dragged my bleeding leg home, but something about the plasma between both realities had lessened the degree of my injury and allowed for me to make it without being forced to crawl. The moment that I pushed through the door, I showered and then I bandaged myself up. I had one miscalled and it was nothing but spam. Makes me wonder if I had perished in the other reality would anyone have even known. The following morning, I drove into town for some over-the-counter painkiller. Both of my wounds burned fiercely and it made it quite difficult to sleep. The problem, however, is that while I was in the store, I saw a glimpse of something thin and dark in the corner of my eye. I thought the store would have enough light. I don't know what happened in that other reality, nor do I know what the creatures are. I think that if I even spent even a minute more there, I wouldn't be alive to tell you all about it. Now I'm home in my room with as much light on as possible because that's the only thing that I can think of. But as I'm writing this, one of these shadow creatures, it phased through my door, and it's currently staring at me from across the room. I don't know why it hasn't attacked me yet, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I work as a custodian for a 24-7 theater with Some Strange Rules, written by Crimson Bayonet. Hey everyone, as the title says, I work at a 24-hour movie theater. Recently, a strange turn of events has me reconsidering my current occupation. You see, I work during the graveyard shift from 11pm to 7am. Now, other than this theater being open 24-7, everything is the same. However, there are rules to the night shift that we have to abide by. I can remember the first night in the job when my boss, TMN, showed me the ropes. Reminded me that there are steps to cleaning and shutting down the bathrooms and how to clean these screening rooms between movies. He took me to his office to show me a set of rules that we must follow. Okay, Andre. We have a set of rules that you must always stick to. And if they're not followed, it'll be the cause for termination. And Taman said sternly, I'll have zero issues following those. I spoke with extreme enthusiasm. Well, well, well. Looks like you want to work, so okay, let's go over them then. He spoke in a happier tone. Rule number one. When it becomes 3am, you must close down all the bathrooms until 4am. Rule number two. When cleaning out the theater, the light has to be on, and you must finish before the screen turns black. Rule number three. If a man without a face walks in, you are not to speak to him for any reason. 
Rule number four. All of the staff must enter the lobby at 3 a.m. and stay there until 4 a.m. Rule number five. If you see someone talking to a man without a face, do not attempt to stop them and look away. Rule number six. Do not attempt to film or record anything that goes on here. Now that we've gone through all of the rules, is there anything that you need from me? He said nonchalantly. I, uh, no, I think I'm good. I spoke, swallowing my nerves. He smiled at me, and he escorted me out of the office, and then he left the theater. I instantly got to work, cleaning the front room while a person named Cynthia taught me the ropes. She was a very nice girl, and she had been there for years. Hey, it's almost 3 a.m. We need to go close down the bathroom, and then head to the lobby. Let me show you how. She seemed a little bit nervous as she said this. I followed closely behind her as we made our way over to the bathroom. The only strange thing is how the bathrooms have deadbolts that are kind of hidden on the outside. Okay, now first we knock three times and crack the door open and then ask if anyone is in there. She takes a deep breath and she knocks three times on the door. Anyone there? Custodians, we need to clean the bathroom at this time. She listened closely and heard someone say, Ah, uh, yes, I'm almost done. A woman's voice could be heard in the background. Oh, well, okay, thank you. She looked hurried and looked down at her watch, seeing the time clicking closer to 3 a.m. At the time, it was 2.57 a.m., and I could see Cynthia getting more and more on edge as the time got closer. Oh, crap, crap, crap. It's one minute until 3 a.m., and she still hasn't flushed. We need to lock the door now. Right when she reaches for the hidden deadbolt, the woman came out and says, sorry, and then walks to the theater down the right. Cynthia quickly locks the door and breaks out as a sigh of relief. Oh, thank God she got out of there. It was just then that we heard a scream in the bathroom. Another woman was still in there. Yo, what are we doing? Oh, we gotta help her. I shouted as I reached for the deadbolt, but I was abruptly stopped by Cynthia, who had grabbed my hand and pushed me away. Hey, what the heck are you? I exclaimed out loud until I was cut off. Listen to me now, and listen carefully. We cannot open this door. If we decide to, you and I will, will die. No, come on. We gotta get to the lobby. She said this with fear in her eyes, and she pushed me towards the lobby. In the background, I could still hear the unknown woman screaming out loud, as if she was fighting for her life. I could hear the screams even in the lobby, but when it became 
The screaming stopped with the sound of tearing flesh and breaking bone. For the first time, I felt a primal fear. The idea that someone was being torn to shreds made me feel like I didn't want to be there anymore. I slowly started walking towards the doors when it walked in. Standing in front of me was a man about eight feet tall, wearing a suit and a bowler hat. He had no face, no eyes, ears, mouth, or even a nose. He looked at me and then looked at the front desk and continued walking. We briefly stopped at the front desk and placed five human fingers made of gold on the counter. He waited for the cashier to hand him what looked like a movie ticket made of pure light. He walked down the hallway before a customer was walking down the same hallway, and they didn't seem to even notice him. I decided to take a look around the corner and follow him with my eyes. He stopped in front of a picture on the wall, and he walked through it. I can hear everyone taking a deep breath. Cynthia pulled me to the side to speak with me privately. Okay, so I need you to be able to keep a promise. You and I are going to clean the bathroom, but you cannot say a word about this to anyone or anything. What you see here stays here. Got it? She looked at me with a fierce determination. Yeah, yeah, I promise. Of course, that was a complete utter lie. She and I got to the bathroom, and she took a deep breath and shakingly opened the door. As the door swung open, the smell hit me like a ton of bricks. The smell of rusty iron filled the air, and I could taste the blood as it pulled on the back of my throat. I was gagging before Cynthia handed me a filter mask, which seemed to solve the problem for the time being. We made our way inside with a pair of buckets and mobs. The horror that I saw before me was nigh unspeakable. Blood and viscera covered the walls with bits and pieces of it hanging from the ceiling. The red on the floor was draining into the drain on the floor. I held back my vomit as we mopped up the remains of the woman. This almost took two hours to complete. Cynthia kept trying to tell me jokes to break the ice and to get my mind off the idea that I was cleaning a person off the floor. I don't remember much during it as I was disassociating hard, maybe to distance myself from the messed up situation. We were about done when something walked out of the stall. A tall woman with white eyes and an unnaturally large smile. She looked at me and Cynthia while smiling. I could see red on her teeth and her teeth were also very sharp looking. She bent down toward me slowly while she was doing so I could hear her bones creaking and popping in and out of place. This woman, this thing spoke to me. Oh, honey, I'm sorry for all this mess. Hope you have a wonderful night now. She laughed a little. As she was walking out, she had to crouch low to clear the doorway. I never saw her after this. 
Cynthia looked at me in shock and I could see the sweat bead down on her forehead. You, you are so lucky that she didn't kill you. She blurted out in relief. What? What do you mean? I blurted back in response. She is one of the regulars. A set of beings who never speak to us and are extremely dangerous. Once people who they speak to or who speak to them, they kill and devour on the spot. The reason that we lock the door is to keep anyone from speaking to her, as she always appears here at 3am. For some reason, she didn't want to eat you. I was in shock and I couldn't speak. I had almost died. Why was I ignored? These things rang through my head, and I lost track of the time and before I knew it, Cynthia was snapping at my face. Hey newbie, you there? She sounded upset. Oh, yeah, what happened? I asked. Oh, not much. You decided to black out, but I got the rest cleaned up. I understand this job pays well, but there's some messed up stuff that goes down here. She laughed a little as she rang the mop out, and a flood of crimson liquid poured into the bucket. Cynthia and I started to walk to the first theater on the left, and we waited for the customers to leave. They were watching the new Marvel movie, and I could hear the ending credits rolling. Surprisingly, no one stayed for the inevitable end credit scene, but I wasn't going to question it. We walked in and we tried to clean up as fast as possible. It was almost five minutes when the screen went black and we could hear the film slowly shutting off. The sound of the lights shutting down one by one echoed through the theater. Run! Get out! Cynthia screamed in fear and sprinted past me. I didn't question, I just ran. All of a sudden, she had tripped and started to scream and cry. No, 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 I don't want to die. It was then that I saw a tall, pale humanoid being crawl out of the screen. This figure bolted towards Cynthia, knocking me down in the process. I could see this thing crawling over her body. It quickly covered her mouth with some of its flesh, and I saw that it slowly started to melt with Cynthia. It pressed its body against Cynthia slowly, absorbing her almost. The pain and fear in her eyes showed how much she was terrified. I couldn't move. It was as if my fight-or-flight response was completely broken, and my body wasn't sure of what to do. All of Cynthia was inside of this thing, and then twitched his head towards me and slowly moved toward me. It stopped in front of me staring at my eyes. It felt like a century had passed while we had locked eyes. I then looked toward the film screen and started to crawl back into it as the lights began to flicker back on. It was only but a few minutes later when I could hear customers immediately mindlessly shambling into the theater. It was only 30 minutes before I could clock out, so I decided to go to the bathroom and sit on the toilet to take a breather. I didn't know how to process these things and in no time. I heard my phone buzzing at the time. It was finally 7 a.m. Time to leave. I ran to the clock to sign out. I had never been so relieved to go home, and before I could leave the front door, 
Tianmen walked in and stopped me. Ah, how was your first night? Where's Cynthia? He asked. I, uh, she's gone. She was attacked by the thing in the movie screen. Looking back at this, this was all that I could say. It was a nightmare, but oddly enough, he looked at me seriously and said, Hmm, well that's no good. So, you were able to make it out, huh? He asked as he had scratched his head. Um, no, not really. I fell and the thing just stared at me after. God, absorbing Cynthia. I said while trying to hold back my feelings. You survived. Interesting. Well, hey, kiddo, what if I told you that I'm going to promote you and triple your wage if you stay working here? I'll do it starting tomorrow, too. He spoke with confidence and grandiose. Um, let me sleep on it. Is that okay? I need to get home and get some rest. I had sat shakingly. Oh, of course. Sleep it off and come on back. We will be eagerly waiting. He waved me off and I started to walk back toward home. I got home and I immediately vomited. I had never been so terrified in my life. The money is going to be amazing, but I don't know if I want to die. But it doesn't seem like I would. Tell me, have you ever seen the devil? I feel like last night that I have, and anyways, stay safe out there, people, for you may never know what is lurking in the shadows. I work as a metro security officer. Your local station might be closed for a reason. Written by Beardify. All I wanted was a job where I didn't know anybody and where nobody knew me. I found it working security in the metro. The company was desperate for people and I mean why not? It's a crappy job. I could have told you that even before I started. You spend all day in a sunless concrete tube. You spend all day dealing with addicts, criminals, their victims, and the mentally disturbed. Not a single person you interact with is happy to see you. I knew going in that the work was going to be unpleasant. I just didn't expect it to be horrifying as well. None of that was on my mind while I was signing the paperwork, though. I wore a smug grin, confident that I would never see any of the people from my old job again. And that was all that I cared about. They had been my best friends, and working with them was a dream come true, at first. But bad financial decisions and relationship drama destroyed in two months what... We had spent over five years building together. The truth was, I hoped that spending all day surrounded by the grimy charcoal smell of the metro would drive away the bitter taste that still lingered in my mouth. After several weeks of soul-sucking training, so basically, you can't defend yourself physically. I mean, we wouldn't want a lawsuit and boring patrols with my angry co-workers. Why didn't you stop that guy, huh? Don't you know that they always run? My manager had called me into his office. 
How are things going so far? I gave him a grim smile. He nodded. That was about what he had expected, it seemed. And then he did an odd thing. He closed the office door and started scratching behind his ear with a pen. It was like he was nervous about something. I noticed that his shirt was rumpled and untarred, and there were bags beneath his eyes. I'm sending you to Station X. I'm not going to name the location here. Your partner is Hans. No patrolmen, just stand on the platform and keep an eye out. Uh, Hans. He was probably the most cynical person that I had ever met. Hans' goal each day was to put forth the absolute minimum amount of effort possible until he could retire at the end of the year. No one liked him. In between getting stuck with Hans and the manager's nervous tick, I already knew that it was going to be a crap assignment. I just didn't know why. Not then. Station X wasn't in a rough neighborhood. There weren't any football matches or political rallies in the area, so why all the secrecy? Hans knew more than me, that was for sure. He spent every second that he could away from the platform. First, it was a bathroom break, then a cigarette break, then a phone call. One of the engineers upstairs needed to see him. They were trying to fix the lights. The excuses were endless. And as annoying as Hans was, anything was better than standing guard alone. They size you up. The roving bands of teenagers. The junkie pickpockets with dirty needles in their pockets. The football hooligans. Should we jump this guy? Their eyes say, maybe it would be fun. There's nobody around to save this guy now. The first treat of the day was a pale, skinny kid having some kind of fit. Kept screaming about how there were demons chasing him, that they were going to take control of him and make him do bad things, that he didn't want it, and so on. I got him calmed down enough to bring him to the exit and the real police. Next was the blonde lady and the red jacket and heels. She didn't give me any trouble, but I just couldn't leave her sitting there crying to herself on a bench. Ten years, she kept saying. I don't understand it. Apparently, she had bumped into her ex on the metro by pure chance. I gave her some tissues and got her on her way. Then came a grandmother whose wallet had been stolen. She lived in the neighborhood and said the thieves used to only target tourists, but they were getting bolder every day. I felt bad for her and wanted to take down her information. But the lights flickered. Odd. But hadn't Hans said something about electricians, and where was he anyway? The old woman was looking at the glowing exit sign in terror. So it's true, she whispered. Another flicker, and then the lights went out altogether. Steps rushed across the platform, empty except for me and the pickpocketed grandmother. I would say footsteps, but I'm not entirely sure that it wasn't more like something crawling on all fours. In the pitch blackness beside me, the old woman let out a low moan. There were two snaps. The moan became a scream. An instant later, the lights were back. It couldn't have taken more than 20 seconds. 
but the old woman lay like a twisted puddle on the dirty tile of the platform. Both of her legs had been broken, twisted in opposite directions. She just lay there, clenching at the fast, darkening, swollen spots on her legs. She was incapable of explaining what had happened to her in the dark, but she had clearly wet herself out of pain or fear. This definitely hadn't been in the training video. A train pulled up. Almost all the passengers deliberately avoided looking at us, not wanting to get tangled up in problems. But a few helped me to get the poor woman straightened out, to elevate her feet and neck, and keep her company while I used the emergency phone to summon help. Looks like the lights still aren't fixed. A sarcastic voice behind me commented, Hans, the last person that I wanted to see in the middle of a medical emergency. I lost my temper. Can you please go see if the paramedics have arrived yet? I snapped at him. Hans rolled his eyes and walked as slowly as possible towards the stairs. What the heck had just happened? You're back at station X today. The manager told me the next morning. We really need to avoid any more unfortunate accidents like yesterday's. That wasn't an... The manager held up a hand, answered a ringing phone, and then turned back to me with sympathetic eyes. Oh, Hans won't be joining you today. He isn't feeling well. My hands turned into fists thinking about how much worse my already stressful job was without a partner for protection. Isn't it against company policy to have an employee patrol alone? I protested. The manager's pitying expression turned frosty. Before you make waves, you might want to remember that you're still on your probationary period. We can let you go at any time. I would hate for you to leave us without another job lined up. I left for Station X and a half. The manager was being like he was, but he was right. I was one month's rent away from being on the street. I couldn't quit, even if what I was being asked to do wasn't in the rule book. Besides, I had been turning the bizarre event over and over in my mind all night. There had to be a logical explanation for what had happened. Right? I imagined possible scenarios as I stood boredly on the platform of Station X not even sure what I was supposed to be keeping an eye out for. Perhaps the old lady had just slept. The hours stretched on, train doors opening and closing at the smoothest clockwork. I got used to Station X. By the end of the first day, I knew every gum-plastered bench, every cracked and grimy tile, every dead moth and the overhead lights. I even recognized the red, green, and yellow bulbs I used to convey information to the drivers. That's why it was so strange to see those two points of white light in the darkness of the tunnel. I squinted. They were tiny and reflective, bright as an arc welder's flame but gave off no spark. And they were getting close. An instant before the train cut through the darkness, I saw him. A man in a white suit and a yellow silk shirt, standing just beyond the reach of the platform lights. Those tiny, burning lights. They were his eyes. And then came the train's shrill whistle and he was gone. 
I shuddered and wondered if so much time in Station X was getting to my head. But finally, my relief arrived. Another young Renacop like me without the seniority to get himself transferred far away from this bizarre assignment. We traded a sad, annoyed nod before I walked outside into the rain. I was surprised to see Hans waiting for me at the kiosk. He held a newspaper in front of his face like a comedy movie spy. A damp cigarette hung from his lips. Too good to cut out five minutes early like the rest of us, huh? He greeted me with a sneer. And then suddenly hands shoved the newspaper into my chest. Here, I thought you should know. He walked off into the rain, still struggling to light his wet cancer stick. I sheltered in the kiosk and fought to fold up the newspaper. As I did, something fell out. A disc. I slipped it into my computer as soon as I got home, expecting some sick joke. But instead, I found security camera footage. Three men walking down the familiar platform of a Station X. The footage cut out for a moment. And then one man was leaning against the wall, clutching his hideously twisted arm. In the next recording, a young guard just like me observed a passenger stepping out of a train. After several seconds of darkness, the video shows him lying on the ground face up, but chest down. His head had been snapped backwards, and I didn't know whether to be relieved or disgusted that his chest or back was still rising and falling with heavy breathing. Several more trains came and went before anyone stopped to help. The thought of the grandmother's words, So, it is true. People knew something weird was going on at Station X, and I had no doubt that the manager did too, but I had bills to pay. The next day he found me back on the platform, tense enough to snap, but no wiser than I had been before I had watched those awful recordings. It started around 9am. I wished that I was having a nightmare. I wished that I could wake up. But those white-hot eyes staring at me from inside the tunnel, they were real. The lights flickered. The eyes moved closer. I could see the outline of the man in the yellow shirt, unchanged from the day before. Another flicker, and he was on the edge of the platform. Middle-aged, Asian, Korean maybe, fashionable. His eyes appeared normal beneath the platform lights. But an instant later, the darkness returned, and this time it lasted for six of my thundering heartbeats. When it ended, he was standing beside me. New guy, huh? The man in the yellow shirt had asked, as though he hadn't just crossed 20 meters in six seconds without making a sound. The way that his face moved when he talked was all wrong, like the face was just a mask for as something else. Please step back, sir. I moved my hand to my belt with a confidence that I didn't feel. The man in the yellow shirt grinned. When I tried to look in his eyes, that white light flashed and seared my irises, forcing me to stare dizzily at the ground. I let my hand fall to my side. It's you, isn't it? I mumbled helplessly. You're the one who's hurting people. I like the sounds they make. He shrugged. A train unloaded and people flowed past me. 
just another deadbeat security guard harassing a passenger. You're important, you know that. Not now, but later. The man in the yellow shirt tapped the side of his head with a long finger. A friend told me so a long time ago. A friend who knows things so unfortunately. I have to leave you whole and unbroken. Get your hands off me. A young man with a single, diamond-studded earring whipped his hand across the cheek of a girl in high boots and jean shorts, who was clawing at his face with her nails. She was already cowering, but he smacked her again. Stupid. It was nice talking to you. The man in the yellow suit cracked his neck. The lights flickered and he was gone. The only evidence that he had ever stood there was the fighting couple who were quiet now that their hands had been shattered and shoved elbow deep down each other's throats. One of the paramedics told me that while their jaws could be reset, the damage to their hands was probably permanent. I just hoped they wouldn't have to share a room in the hospital. After the hand incident, my manager's manager manager apparently decided enough was enough, and Station X was closed for 10 days due to construction. Someone even had the bright idea of putting up nets and barriers to keep up the sham. By the time the station reopened, the man in the yellow shirt was gone. Maybe he or it got bored and it moved on. Maybe it found something else to entertain itself with, I mean who knows. After a week of no new accidents at Station X, I was reassigned to my regular rotation. But sometimes... Usually when it's late at night and I haven't slept, or when I'm alone on the empty platform, I would swear that I still see a pair of white irises burning in the darkness of the tunnel. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks so much for sticking around throughout today's lineup. I really appreciate your continued support. I also appreciate the support of today's sponsor, Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com and type Mr. Creeps in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package today. You'll get 8 of their new Bigger Omaha Steaks burgers absolutely free. And because it is Omaha Steaks, everything is backed by their 100% money back guarantee. I hope you all enjoy the start of summer wherever you may be in the world. Make sure to cool off and go for a swim if you're able to. Stay hydrated, stay cool, and of course, stay creepy.